You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Pleasure. Wanted to start by asking um, if you were to look at your experience with um, CBS and Take Two Interactive, how do you compare those two as kind of functional responsibilities, being the chairman of one and the CEO of the other? Well, no comparison, really. I, I was uh, asked to be on the board of CBS Corporation prior to its merger with Viacom. And then I, I think a month into my board service, the, the chair stepped down for health reasons and they asked me to serve as chair. So, of course, I was non-exec chair of the company for about, I, I want to say, 18 months. Um, that's quite different than Take-Two Interactive, where my team and I took the company over in 2007. I initially became executive chairman. My partner, Ben Fetter, at that time became CEO. When he stepped down in 2011, I then took on the CEO responsibilities as well. So one was very much non-executive board service and, and the role of a non-executive chairman is really to convene and try to be helpful in the board processes. Chairman and CEO of, a, of an operating company that um, you know, my team and I are responsible for operating is a very different animal, of course. Tell me about how the lead up to the acquisition of Take-Two, which company were you with that, that mounted that? So the, the backstory is that uh, my partners and I founded ZMC in 2001 with the idea of building through acquisition a diversified array of digitally driven media and entertainment assets. Um, and we started looking for transactions. And our first deal was um, uh, a pipe with control of a company called Columbia Music Entertainment, which was a independent Japanese record company, different from the Columbia records that, that we know here in the US. Uh, and that was a really tough deal. It was you know, thousands of miles away. I did not speak Japanese and the company had been losing money, I think for 20 years. Um, and it was, only, it was only still alive because of Japanese banks and the way that they view uh, organizations and, and in the US or anywhere, now, anywhere else on, on earth that would have been long bankrupt. Um, we were able to turn that company around successfully, even, even though the record business was already challenged. Uh, it was less challenged in Japan at that time than in the rest of the world. And that led us uh, to other transactions. And by 2007, I think we had group-wide aggregate revenues of around a billion dollars. And um, I wanna say we had five different companies at that point, um, maybe, maybe one or two more. And an opportunity presented itself at Take-Two Interactive uh, because a company had been struggling for a long time. Um, it had failed to file financial reports for over a year. Um, it was under investigation by the New York, New York DA's office, the um, SEC and the uh, FCC and the SEC. They won the trifecta yep. of government yep. investigations in any case. A good place and, to be at all times. Uh, the chairman had been indicted. The CFO was under investigation. Um, so the company was really troubled. And um, the vast majority of the shares were in the hands of um, a, a very small number of financial institutions. And we were able to... Um, actually bring a floor vote to the board outside of a proxy fight. We didn't engage in a proxy fight and actually were voted in to take over the board and take over the company, which we did. 
And what attracted you to that? Was that the, I mean, my assumption would be, it would be the portfolio of um, the video games that they had. Uh, well, I, I'd been in the video game business before, so I, I, I became uh, the first CEO of Crystal Dynamics in 1993. I left 20th Century Fox to go pursue that opportunity because I believed in 1993 that video games would be the entertainment business of the future. Thankfully, I was right. It took a while, but I was right. What did uh, Crystal Dynamics make? What were the games they had? Uh, well, in those days, they were making their first two games. Um, for a platform that failed called 3DO. We diversified the company and made games for Sony and Sega and Nintendo ultimately. And uh, they were ultimately known for games that I had nothing to do with yeah. after my time. Um, the first game I think was called, the first two, if I'm not mistaken, were called Total Eclipse and Crash and Burn. Okay. They both did okay because, um, because there were new platforms at that time and they were, believe it or not, 32-bit games when that was a very exciting wow. thing. And, uh, and they both did fine. But I think their, their biggest success was Lara Croft, uh, Tomb Raider, and that was okay. well, and yep. Star Control and others well after my time. Um, we built up that company. I then left actually to go to the record business and okay. um, to turn around BMG, which was ultimately sold Sony after I left. And that was a very successful opportunity before I started ZMC. So I had some um, familiarity with the, the uh, video game business. And while I was at BMG, we started BMG Interactive. Got it. And BMG Interactive uh, had developed an, a number of video games. And just before we were going to release the first one that we developed, uh, senior management of the parent company, Bertelsmann, insisted that I divest the company, which you know, over my loud objections, but I wasn't the CEO of the parent company. So we, we divested the company. We sold it for $14 million of stock in a tiny little public company called, wait for it, Take Two Interactive. Ah. So the portfolio that, that was created at BMG became Take Two's portfolio, and they acquired a bunch of other enterprises. And by the time we saw the opportunity to Take Two, it was a, about a $700 million net revenue company, uh, having a great deal of trouble sort of knocking on the door of bankruptcy, which yeah. was, at that point was sort of uh, always attractive to me. Yeah. I figure if, if it's already in that shape, you certainly can't make it worse. Yeah, right. um, so we took over the company. It had, as I said, 700 million in net revenue and about 700 million in, in market cap as well. Uh, $50 million in cash, no debt. It's thankfully. interesting. The thing that stands out to me about Grand Theft Auto is how good the soundtrack to it is, mm -hmm. which would then make sense considering how much interaction you've had in the music business. Well, I wish I could take any credit whatsoever for that. I, you know, all the creative work is done by Rockstar Games on Grand okay. Theft Auto. And, um, you know, I, I cheer them on and I really believe in them. But I don't have a creative hand in, in the property. Yeah. Um, and what year did you start ZMC? Oh, one. Oh, one. And that was an outgrowth of, did you leave your career and start that? Or? Yeah, I left BMG to, to start ZMC. Okay. So I, my initial goal in my career was yeah. to run a movie studio. Yeah. And then that ambition was realized vastly more quickly than anyone could have ever expected. Certainly, uh, I was at the front of the line of being surprised. I was running um, my first studio, the largest independent, when I was 29, and then- Which was that? Vestron, no okay. longer in business. Yep. And then I became president and chief operating officer of Fox when I was 32. Yep. So by the time I was 35, I'd already been running studios for about seven years. Yep. I'd overseen the creation of 155 motion pictures, lots of hits. And I, I began to turn my attention to the next thing. I understood at that point the nature of the motion picture asset class, which is terrible. It was yep. terrible then, it's terrible now. Yep. Not getting better anytime soon. And why is that? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, too, too much capital uh, addressing a business that spends a great deal of money on very risky projects. And that's because it's a sexy thing to be involved in, or? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. And there are no entry barriers. Anyone can make a movie. Got it. I mean, we're making a movie right now. Yeah. The, the, the people who are, who are um, taping us yeah. today are eminently capable, yeah. with a very small amount of inexpensive equipment, of making a 90-minute movie. Yeah. Now, it may not be a huge hit movie, but there are just no entry, entry barriers at all. And moreover, with the right capital, the people taping here today can hire the best talent in Hollywood yeah. because everyone's a free agent. Yeah. So if you have a compelling script and you have the money, you can hire anyone. That's very different than entertainment businesses that have studio systems. Studio systems protect entertainment businesses. So the record business is effectively a studio system, which is why I was willing to go there. And the video game business is a studio system. The record business, and this is the old record business, obviously changed quite a bit. You'd identify an artist at the very beginning of their career and you'd sign them to a seven album deal, which was basically like most of their career. Yes. And in most instances, their entire career. What did the, um, the Beatles made what, 10 albums? I, Seven or ten. Actually, it's in, it's in that zone. I was never involved with the Beatles. So yeah. I don't know no, I just meant as a benchmark for what they were only a, they were only a, an act for six years, which yeah. is uh, something incredible. Like that. It's amazing, given how prolific they were. And the video game business is also a studio system in that the people who create your products are on the payroll of the company. But as soon as you take an entertainment business, any entertainment business, and turn it into a pure free agency system, the economics typically blow up for the people who invest in the business. Well, that happened starting in 1955 in the music business yeah. before I was born. Yeah. So by the time I got into to the movie, I said music, but the movie business. By the time I got into the movie business in uh, 1983, breathtaking, how long ago that was, you know, it was it was already a really bad business. Yeah. Just in terms of pure economics. Um, and are there how many outside investors do ZMC have? Well, we we are a private equity firm, yep. so we have. Uh, uh, different funds, and we have uh, different investors in each Got of the it. funds. But I, I, I would imagine we have probably in total maybe 100 investors okay. across our three funds so yep. far. And what are the characteristics of something that you look at? If How much of that is discretionary trading, and how much of that would be strategic uh, investing in the way of... No, we're private equity. We're not hedged, so we don't do any trading at all. So, okay, so then there's no, hey, this looks uh, opportunistic to me, let's do it. It's, we're all in, we want to have control, and that's what... that's what We will occasionally do minority changes. investments, but even then we have a, a so lot of control levers. Generally, we're, we're control investors, yep. and... Um, we would never, <laughs> a conversation would never be, hey, this looks interesting, let's, let's just it. do it. Yeah. You know, we, we go through a very deep yeah. uh, and thorough diligence process. What, what are the triggers then of, you know, what are the characteristics and triggers of something that looks good to you? You know, if you were to say on the assembly line, you see probably, what, 30 things a year minimum? No, no, 130? no 700. Okay, fine, yeah, way late. Um, so then what, you know, which are the ones that you say, okay, I'm going to stop and take a closer look at these 30. And then once you've taken those 30, what's the one of the 30? You're like, okay, from 730, we saw this year, this one we're going to do. So we have an unusual approach yeah. to, uh, to private equity. We invest behind somewhere between 10 and 15 themes okay. uh, at any given time. We have an annual strategic retreat in August. <clears throat> we just had ours virtually, which yep. it, it as it turns out, was the most productive retreat we've ever yeah. had. It was not the most fun retreat yes. we've ever had, but it was the most productive. 
And we will sort of go through all the themes we've been pursuing mm. and throw some over the side and generally add a few more that have been researched over the prior year. The overarching theme is what digital technology will continue to do to media communications, entertainment, software, uh, and the like. And, and we define media very broadly. Mm. Um, so we have infrastructure businesses, service businesses, and entertainment businesses. Um, so we're looking for something where because we're students of the business and always have been, where we believe that in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, not next quarter or next year, technology will have evolved in such a way that it will supercharge the business in question. Um, so we're, we're essentially investing behind themes and trends, or at least we hope we are. Yeah. And generally, that's played out very, very well for us. Um, we've, of course, made some opportunistic investments where we think there are turnaround possibilities because I've come from the world of turnarounds. Turnarounds are really hard. Um, you know, they're emotionally difficult. Mm. And so we try not to do more than one at a time. They can be a great way to create returns and actually to create value. Like I'm, I'm super proud of what we've done at Take Two. I'm proud of the work I did at BMG and Fox, Columbia Music in Japan, um, at uh, Direct Holdings. Um, but, but it's hard and it's hard to restructure, it's hard to uh, let people go who don't fit in jobs or where you have to completely change a, a cost structure. So we, we prefer to invest in growth businesses where you know it's kind of good news all the time. Well, which, and and you, you must have experienced along the way a turnaround that did not make it. We did, we've had one. Okay. We, we got out okay, we actually got out with a small return, but we yeah. did have one. Um, and what have been the lessons in restructuring turnarounds? Hmm. If well, you, the lesson the one that didn't make it was or just um, in any of them. If, do if what I you know. Yeah. So we, we had, um, that was a company called Lillian Vernon. It was a catalog company mm -hmm. in the direct marketing space. And we had a strong direct marketing experience. And our belief was that Lillian Vernon was, you know, a direct marketing company that happened to sell, you know, little cute housewares and um, uh, apparel items to women. Um, and so we figured it's just a direct marketing enterprise and we know direct marketing. We, we did know direct marketing. You know, we didn't know anything about little cute housewares and apparel that appeals to women. And so we were just a, a very poor match for that enterprise. And we, we were fortunate that we were able to sell it and create a very small return. Um, but it was a real reminder to uh, invest, not only to invest behind themes because the theme in direct marketing was the transition from direct mail to television and the internet. And that, that theme played out and we did very well when we bought Time Life from Time Warner. That was great because guess what? We knew about the music business mm. and Time Life primarily sold music. Um, so we were playing to our strengths and playing to our knowledge of direct marketing. That was a great, a great result. Um, so we were, we, you know, we've learned the hard way to know not just what we know, but to know and have a healthy respect for that, which we do not know. Now, if you have, at this point, if I were to say, hey, look, I've called you because I've married myself to something I know about and it's a turnaround situation, what advice do you give somebody walking into that situation? What are the first five things to look at and the, and the obvious things to do typically when you have something that's beaten up? So uh, we use a four square box, okay. um, which is um, the, the X axis is uh, effort, low to high. The Y axis is impact, low to high. And you look for, you start by looking at things that are low effort, high impact. Then you have to work on high effort, high impact. Then you'll eventually get to low effort, low impact, 
and you don't touch high effort, low impact. Yeah. That's the one you never get to. Um, so what's you know low effort, high impact? It's not firing people mm -hmm. because firing people scares the remaining people. It's unkind. Oh, and by the way, you, how do you know even who to fire? You don't know very much. You've just shown up um, into a situation where things by definition are not going well. And also by definition, you are the least knowledgeable person in the room. Mm -hmm. So what we do instead is we, we embark on what we call a top 10 vendor program, where we find all the top 10 vendors to the company and take a look at those deals and renegotiate every one of them. Um, in the same way that you would in a bankruptcy, except we're mm -hmm. doing it outside of bankruptcy, where you go to vendors and say, look, we understand you have an arrangement. This company is going to fail if we can't have a conversation about changing the arrangement. And we're usually able to pull meaningful costs out of the company by, by doing that. I'm not talking about um, failing to pay people money that's yep. owed. I don't believe in doing that. I believe in paying what you owe. But I am talking about an ongoing course of dealing. Um, that usually takes a few months. And during that time, you familiarize yourself with the team. Um, you establish a new culture, and we are very communicative. We have town hall meetings. We tell people we intend to do. We're very transparent. Uh, we put in place new compensation systems, which align everyone who works at the company with the results we're looking for, which is typically increasing the earnings of the company. So we make sure that all compensation that is incentive-based is driven by incentives that we want to drive. We, we, we get rid of all discretionary comp, make sure it's all formulaic, and the formula is what we're trying to achieve. That's huge at a company. Now everyone's pulling in the same direction. And usually, you know, the, that program of, you know, fixing the comp program, talking to everyone, running around meeting everyone so you learn what's going on since mm. you don't know anything yet, um, and the top 10 vendor review will take you three or four months, minimally. At the end of those three or four months, if you've done it right, you've actually made a real impact because you reduced the cost structure of the company. And now the team says, instead of saying, who are these jokers who don't know anything, who are going to treat us poorly? They're like, oh, we know them. We understand the culture. They've aligned our interests with, with a comp program. Um, they've reduced the cost of the company. And even if we only did so modestly, it's a benefit. This isn't so terrible. Then we look at the organization and go through the painful restructuring that one always has to go yep. through. And we will be honest with the teams, of course, that we will eventually do that. We're honest that we don't do it initially. And what I usually say is, look, I know everyone's fear, you know, the first day that someone like me shows up is that people are going to get fired. We're not doing that. We're going to get to know you. Then inevitably, we'll end up doing some restructuring. Um, and you may not, you know, I can't guarantee you that will work out well for you. But what I can guarantee you is you'll have a whole lot better shot at working out for, working out for you if we work together in these months to try to fix and build the company. And generally that works. And then we turn our attention to the harder projects. And so at Take Two, our initial approach was cost reduction, then uh, reorganization, um, and then diversification of the product line. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. In the course of my business, if I do headhunting, I've gotten to become pretty, uh, maybe a, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on television. So I know quite a bit now about employment law. Um, how much do you know about bankruptcy law from the course of all of this? Or I've never had a bankruptcy, fortunately. Right? No. Does it? But does it inform lock, what you do? Something like I, I, I try to help people avoid employment controversies, but 
knowing what happens when they happen or what's written in the contract is important usually. And it often it guides the negotiation without it leading to a legal outcome. Does that inform how you behave in a restructuring or the course of action is to just try to do what is going to make it work irrespective of let's hope we don't flush the toilet and just get through this? No, I, I think of given, given that we put equity capital into every one of our transactions, yep. a bankruptcy is likely to wipe us out. Okay. So a bankruptcy is sort of game over yep. for an equity investor or close to game yep. over. So we, by investing our time and capital, yep. our goal is to is to, to walk away from that and actually move into value creation. What um, what are the current themes that you guys have on now, and which are the ones that you guys discarded in this last meeting? Oh, that's a good question. You know, we're we are, I'm probably not going to share so many of them. Yeah. Uh, the theme I'm most excited by is the continued and continuing explosion of data. So however much data you think consumers and enterprise will use in five years, you're wrong, it will be more. And that creates needs for any number of technologies, um, will create opportunities for numerous software companies. It's a really interesting theme to invest behind, and it's taken us to some very interesting places. Um, so for example, we, um, we invested in a, in a company called IT Renew. Uh, IT Renew's historic and core business is lifecycle management for computer equipment. Mm -hmm. So they serve hyperscale data centers, and when uh, servers age out, they're responsible for very accurately and effectively wiping those servers, removing the servers, uh, either reconditioning them or selling the parts, uh, providing value to the hyperscale data center owner in so doing. So you might ask, what on earth would we be doing uh, with a company like that? And the answer is, well, as data grows, the need for hyperscale data centers will grow. As the need for hyperscale data centers grow, the need for asset management for those data centers will obviously grow. So we essentially invested in a tracking stock that will track the growth of data. So, and it's worked out exactly as planned. Now it's a fantastic company, it provides great services, it's diversified its operations. It has its own path that's far beyond you know, the explosion of data, but that's what brought us to that investment. Um, we also um, are an investor in Nine Story, which is a leading independent kids animation company because animation is immune to many of the headwinds in the entertainment business. Actually, it has numerous tailwinds. As you launch new programming services, the tip of the spear is always children's programming, 100% of the time. And if you if you go on Netflix, you know, kids are right there. Mm. Sign on because kids are um, incredibly loyal viewers. Mm. And if a family has Netflix, trust me, um, and they have kids, they're very concerned with kids programming. And then of course the kids grow up and they stay connected to those services. So animation companies have been really benefited from um, the growth of over the top and subscription services. And Nine Story has, has really uh, led in that in the creation of content for various over-the-top services, including Netflix, Hulu, and others. So we're all across the board. We're also in the sports business. Um, we're in the, um, in the business of optimizing opportunities for publishers, independent publishers of blogs, uh, typically who work from home, mm -hmm. and we optimize their ad revenue and provide highly curated um, consumers to big advertisers. So we stand in between big, big advertisers like P&G and um, 
publishers at home who are typically writing food blogs or, or the like. Many instances we're able to help people who work from home creating blogs that people love uh, make a real living. You know, people who, who had a hobby before now are actually making a great income because we've been able to optimize our advertising. That's one that's of the biggest a company trends. called AdThrive. Yeah, that's one of the, for me, it's one of the biggest trends I've seen in the labor market has been the transition from the corporate uh, career experience where there's a bilateral expectation of loyalty from the employee and the employer to the dismantling of that arrangement where you now have much more of a gig economy where even in my own existence, you know, if I had gone back five or 10 years ago, I might work at some hedge fund or an investment bank doing recruitment. And now it's better to buy that as a piece of service from me individually. Um, and I see that with my client base or the people looking for employment. Right. So that would then feed back into this sort of blogging type um, right. gig economy. Right. And that, that was a trend that we saw that digital advertising will continue to grow. Um, independent publishers yep. will continue to grow. And you know, we were excited to become involved with AdThrive, who enhances the experience for the entire ecosystem. You know, and for a nickel, you can have 10,000 opinions on COVID. <laughs> but you know, I will lead this by I saying- I don't even need a nickel. No, exactly. Um, you can't get rid of them for a nickel. Um, that said, I, my own opinion is the longer it lasts, the more psychological impact it has, and the more deeply it changes our patterns of behavior thereafter. Um, what do you think, um, looking at what's transpired, how life looks digitally thereafter? Because it certainly has shifted things from the real interaction to the Zoom interaction. Everything will accelerate. All trends that previously existed are accelerating. For example, I was very comfortable with a video conference before the pandemic. But now, if I were to call you to check in, I'd make a video call. Yep. And I'd start with a FaceTime call. Yep. And then if that didn't work, I'd make an audio call. Um, as a result, I think I actually feel more connected in many ways to a lot of people in my, you know, sort of my universe, because my universe, after all, is a probably small number of people that I can see face to face mm -hmm. in any given time. This is pre-pandemic. Yep. Um, to a relatively large number of people, without regard to their location, who I can see face to face. And my experience has been, if I already knew you, then talking to you on Zoom feels like we're in the room together. Yep. Almost doesn't feel different. The problem is if I didn't already know you, very hard to develop a warm relationship that yep. way. And um, so I'm not sure, I am not of the, the view, and I know in many ways this is a minority opinion, that the moment passes, and I, first of all, a lot of people don't believe the moment will pass. So yep. Humans are very averse to believing that things change, but of course, the status quo is that everything changes. Yes. So what's happening today is not what will be going on in three months, six months, nine months, or a year. Oh, and by the way, this moment will pass. Like pandemics are not mm. a, a, a familiar or constant feature mm. of the world. The last pandemic of this magnitude was 1918 and 1919. And look, I, and Bill, Bill Gates has made a powerful argument that because of the way we connect with each other and fly all, all around the world, pandemics are likely, and because we're more populous, pandemics are likely to occur more frequently. That remains to be seen. But one thing I know, this moment will pass. Hmm. And when the all clear is actually sounded, no one knows what the all clear will sound like. Yeah. But when it's sounded, we're all going to know. Yeah. And people are going to be like, yeah, I, I do want to go to the movies. I do want to go to a sports game. Um, I do want to go to a restaurant and eat inside. Um, and I do want to work in an office with other people. Equally, though, we will have learned that especially for professional workers, and remember, you know, so many of these discussions I think are so 
tasteless because they lose sight of the fact that something like 65% of Americans have been going to work every day anyhow, yeah. because they, they're either essential workers or the way that they work involves in-person work. So let's be mindful of the fact that we're already talking about a high-class problem. Yep. We're talking about 35% of the US economy anyway. Which are the highest wage earners. The highest wage earners who have the luxury to say, I'll work from home. So when you have a CEO say, I think we can just work from home. First of all, I think that means they're out of touch with mm -hmm. what actual work gets done. My experience as a CEO is like CEOs don't actually do any work. Like you sit in the corner office and like other people do work. Yeah, and like right. you kind of try to manage the flow of yeah. work and maybe move the ball forward occasionally. Um, but the real people who do the work, you know, first of all, they don't have the house the CEO has where it's super pleasant to work. They may be working in a small apartment with their partner and maybe kids around or maybe parents around. They probably want to get out of their house. Secondly, because they're people who do actually work, they often have to collaborate with other people. And while in a pinch we can collaborate electronically, it's not as good as collaborating in person. And that stands to reason. So what I think will happen is, well, all professional employees will be aware, I have other options when I need them. And that's powerful. So for me, I really like running around, visiting my offices <clears throat> and seeing my colleagues year round uh, around the world because I believe that's how we connect and how we create a culture. But I've worked with a lot of them for a long time. Maybe I can make 30 or 40% fewer trips because I can do some of those meetings on video conference and they'll still be mostly as good. I won't be able to do zero, but I'll probably do fewer. I'm probably gonna be more selective about conferences I attend. Um, and I'm probably gonna be more selective about some face-to-face -face interactions that were nice to have, but not necessary. And I probably will work from home now and then. Yep. Um, so I think that will change. And, and in that way, our use of electronic communications will accelerate and already has, and I don't think we'll go back. Like, I don't think I'm gonna start making audio calls again. I think I like video calls. Yeah. I had an experience that illustrated your point. I was in the Hamptons at some point recently to visit a job candidate. And on the way home, I took the bus and the bus was rammed with all of the housekeepers and gardeners and laborers. Um, and every seat was packed, uh, sardine can style. And I thought, you know, this is, this is the alternate reality for people who do physical manual work. It's not to be out at Goldberg's with a bagel, but it's to be stuffed in this bus every day. Right. Um, and that's not going to change. No. Um, and of course, those communities have been hit terribly hard, yep. both by the, the disease and also by the economic that fallout of the pandemic. And not to you know, honor that work and that tragedy and that suffering is insensitive in the extreme. Yep. And it creates the political divisions we have. Right, which, um, are, all, which are only getting worse. Yep. But again, this will pass. Yep. I mean, the, the markets are saying it's passed already. Yep. Um, that hasn't happened. But the markets do look 6, 12, 18 months ahead. Um, I think the market's right now. I think the market's looking at this and saying, we needed, a, we needed a correction. Wouldn't have wished for this one, but we needed a correction. And um, as with all deep uh, corrections, the less efficient businesses, the less well-managed businesses, and the more highly leveraged businesses are going to be restructured or perhaps won't exist anymore. And that will leave the better businesses and the more productive businesses uh, standing and that will accelerate value creation. And that's, in my opinion, why you're seeing the market movements you're seeing. They're not wrong. Yeah. What they're seeing is enhanced productivity, enhanced value creation. The other thing the market's betting on that I believe in is because this was an artificial correction, but it's a correction nonetheless, 
it's had an enormous effect on, uh, on people's spending, consumer spending. And again, when the all clear sounded, what's going to happen, in my opinion? It's like the end of a war. People yeah. are going to start yeah. spending hand over fist, whether they have the money or not. Yeah. And you're going to see a massive consumer-led resurgence in the economy. And again, I think the market's already betting on that. Now, the night will not be you know, sector agnostic. You're going to continue to see pressure on airlines, hospitality, and the like. Um, and have you seen an increase in the pace of things that flow by you on the assembly line? If, if, you know, if you see, you know, if I go back to that conveyor belt analogy, if there's 700 different deals a year, has that gone from 700 to 1,000? Oh, no, other direction. Really? No, people, first of all, people who have a choice don't want to trade in markets like these. Yep. So they, they choose not to transact yep. if they don't think the markets are, are um, congenial. And secondly, we don't feel as confident looking yep. at a company because we can't go visit. Yep. And um, while we have actually done some transactions that were entirely... Um, prosecuted electronically, it is not my preference. Yep. And pardon me, for example, we're working on um, an acquisition now at ZMC. We've known the company for a long time. You know, we're very familiar with the people who work there. We've been having discussions for the better part of 18 months. So we'll feel comfortable if we're able to close a deal, to close a deal. We feel less comfortable with something that's starting in this time yep. where everything is done on Zoom or FaceTime. It's going gonna, it's gonna to create some discomfort. You no. still can manage the environment of a company. You can create your own background. You know, yes. one of the things I, when I go visit a company, the first thing I do is check out the reception area yep. and go to the bathroom. And I already know probably 60% of what I need to know about the company. Because if it's not in ship shape, it's not a good sign. If it's not neat and clean and doesn't uh, reflect respect for the people mm -hmm. who work there, that would be a real problem for me culturally. Mm -hmm. You go to a reception area and there are boxes everywhere and um, the person sitting behind the desk is eating lunch um, and um, has has their uh, coat slung over the back of the chair. And um, there's like an old candy container that, you know, God forbid you eat something in it because it's 13 years old. And then you go to the bathroom and the last time it was cleaned was, you know, three weeks ago that you've obviously learned a great deal about how the people view their enterprise. Yeah, I've worked in the restaurant business for 13 years. And if you want to know everything about the place, take a look in the kitchen. Right, of course. If, if it's not spotless, it's not in good shape. Go to the bathroom, too. Same. Yeah. Yeah. If you go to a restaurant, you go to the bathroom, bathroom's dirty. Tells you immediately. immediately. <laughs> Tells you immediately. Because trust me, the kitchen's not cleaner than the bathroom. <laughs> okay, so, um, and then last question, uh, unrelated to markets, uh, you must be a music fan. Uh, I'm a music fan, but I'm not a, as, I'm not as uh, innovative in my thinking as perhaps I'd like to be. Yeah. What uh, If you were going to take... Five of ten albums that you can't live without. Which are they? Oh, um, five five albums I couldn't live without. Meet the Beatles, which is the, mm -hmm. the first U.S. Yeah. Beatles recording. Um, probably a James Taylor greatest hits album, which drives my wife insane. She's yeah. so tired of listening to James Taylor. It's one of those um, greatest hits that's allowed. Like you can't have like the what is it like? Oh, um, Steve Miller band greatest hits, but you can't have the James Taylor one. You can. Uh, and then I can't identify the albums, but for sure, Rolling Stones album, uh, probably a Springsteen album. Um, uh, I'll leave it there. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.